1: Afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, a brand new Tuesday, and I am thrilled to welcome our new panel.
0: And now, the Recovering Politicians panel.
1: Yes, with a provincial election in a few weeks' time, a horrible war in Ukraine affecting the whole world The challenge of recovering from COVID and increasing polarization at every turn, we are turning to our Recovering Politicians panel with... Charles Sousa, who has been a panelist here for a while. He, of course, is the former Liberal Finance Minister of Ontario. Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP Leader. Welcome. And to start with, uh, please tell us what you've been doing these days, starting with Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Libby. Thanks very much. I like this
2: former politician piece. That sounds really good to me. It's, uh, it's, and it's a great pleasure to be on the phone with Howard and with Charles as well. And what I've been doing is I am now at CIBC in investment banking, but I keep close tabs on what's going on in public policy because I still want to make sure that I'm there to help my country in any way that I possibly can. And thank you for inviting me on the panel. And thank you for coming on.
1: Thank you for coming on the the panel. Howard?
3: I'm doing uh, much of what I used to do, uh, the constituency I represented, which took in 40% of the geography of Ontario, uh, there were 55 First Nation communities in the constituency, uh, all of which I had the honor to work very closely with, and uh, I work with a lot of those communities still. Uh, some I represent on land claims, some I represent on other issues, and some I work with them uh, and with the mining industry, because if you want to mine in Canada today, you have to have uh, a working agreement, a working, uh, a working partnership with First Nations. So I do a lot of that work, too.
1: Okay. And uh, obviously, you are a lawyer.
3: Well, it's one of my occupations, yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> I've been a teacher. I've been a lawyer. Uh, and... Uh, I guess uh, technically I would classify myself as a consultant now. Okay. Charles.
4: Uh, Hi, Lisa and Howard. Great to be on the show with both of you. Uh, Libby, great to be back. Um, Since leaving politics, I sit on a bunch of boards. I'm on a schedule one Canadian bank, small one that's growing and quite involved in capital raise and shareholder groups. I sit on a credit union overseeing the governance practices. And I'm also on the Canadian university of Dubai's board of governors. Uh, I also Act as an advisor for Loyalist Public Affairs, we're engaged in a number of industries and public policy initiatives, but just to keep busy, as I was in politics, I also started a foundation building a long-term care home, affordable housing community program complex in the heart of Toronto, $100 million project as a not-for-profit volunteer trying to give back to the community
1: okay and and we'll have a lot more to say about that because uh, both uh two well actually all three of the parties uh the provincial parties are talking about their seniors and long-term care strategies finally is great that uh it is finally coming the center. But uh, before we get to that, uh, I just want to know, what's on your mind these days? Uh, Let's again start with Lisa.
2: On my mind, well, Libby, one of the things that I do right now, as well as I look after my husband, who has young onset Alzheimer's, and he is currently in a long, he's actually in a specialized unit at a long-term care facility. And I think a lot about long-term care in this province, actually. And I'm very interested to see what the three parties come up with Mm hmm Howard, what's on your mind?
3: Uh, How much trouble the world is in these days. And the world is in a lot of trouble. It doesn't matter if you look at uh, what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, uh, if you uh, look at the election that France just came through, if you look at what's happening in places like in countries like China, India, if you look to the south uh, and our our closest neighbors, um, the world is in a lot of trouble. And uh Canadians uh, we may think that we can uh stand safely aside and it's not going to bother us. Uh it is going to bother us. Inflation is not uh something that is uh local to Ontario or local to Canada. Inflation is something that's happening around the world and I suspect that with what is happening in Russia, and what's happening in Ukraine, it will get much worse. Um and, and so uh and what's happening in those countries, uh will also affect what happens in Canada, as we saw with uh, recent events in the United States. It's not lost on me that uh, in the occupation of Ottawa, much of the money to finance that actually came from people in the United States. So uh, stay stay tuned to a world that is disrupted, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, uh, the ambitions of Russia to reestablish itself as some sort of empire, whether it's uh, the ultra-right against, uh seems like, everyone else in France in politics, um, or whether it's what's happening in the United States, uh, we will be affected. Oh. Probably not positively.
1: Well, we, and and we obviously already are. Charles, uh, what's top of mind for you? Daniel, yeah, you know,
4: I think a lot. I mean, I'm involved in a number of real estate development projects, and housing affordability is a real concern for me. I mean, I worry about young people, young adults. I have three, and they're getting started in life. Just when you think they have enough for a down payment, suddenly it becomes out of reach again. Inflation certainly has to do with it. Higher rates have to do with it. But uh, And I'm also worried about seniors on fixed income for capital preservation. So issues around affordability are a concern. The volatility and uncertainty in the marketplace also is a worry. To Howard's point, there's a lot of geopolitics happening, and it's affecting us directly here at home. And it's directing us not only by way of of economics, but also socially with so much hate and and, and an infringement that seems to be accepted now, which kind of worries me as well.
1: Hmm. Uh, Let's uh, get to uh, stuff that is closer to home. So uh, we have a budget coming out on Thursday, and we have an election in a few weeks time, and as I said at the beginning, and as you heard in Bob's news, finally, seniors are at the center. Yesterday, the PCs promised a billion dollars over three years for home care. Uh, just uh, about an hour ago, Stephen Del Duca, who is going to be on the show later, uh, he wants to double that. He's calling for $2 billion. I think that's over three years. Uh, and he's saying that uh, it, he will revolutionize home care, uh, although the critics say, well, it's the liberals who kind of created the mess. And the NDP has been on this for a long time. They, of course, were the first to say they will abolish for-profit long-term care. So let's start with Howard. Um From what you've heard on senior strategy, long-term care, home care, uh, what do you think?
3: Sounds like a bidding war to me.
1: (laughs) That's Um, a great line. Well, uh,
3: unfortunately, what happens in election campaigns is uh, they do become bidding wars. And and, uh, I think uh, people uh, lose sight of where are we now, how did we get here? And, and what's wrong with it I, um, but now some people though will roll back the the the, the map roll back the calendar uh, of eight by 18 months and recognize that at the same time many seniors were living in for-profit facilities and those for-profit facilities were making a lot of money uh, they also had some of the highest death rates and and so I, I you know I think that to the degree that people can remember what happened 18 to 12, 18 to 24 months ago, um, I hope that will be a deciding factor in, in how people decide to vote. Because I remember reading some of the data that, that, that uh, some of the companies that are very big in for-profit, uh, homes for the age, for-profit nursing homes were racking up, uh, insane profits at the same time that the level of care was, uh, was less than what was needed in the context of COVID-19 and the number of deaths that happened. And I, and I think that, that tells us what happens when you try to mix health care with profit. Um, and and uh, so I, I hope people will focus on that. However, having been through many election campaigns, uh, after a while, people just uh, start to shut out. Uh, what the numbers were, uh, what happened, what the history was. My fear is this will turn into a bidding war, uh, and, and that, if it's just a bidding war, I, I think uh, I, I think we'll end up not not a lot better than where we are now.
1: Lisa, are people going to remember? And you know, when I when I talk to stakeholders, depending on. What side of the fence they're on? They say, "Well, it's it, it, the model isn't the issue because of the government funding," and a lot of them say, "Well, the the really really bad numbers in in for profit care in terms of deaths is because a lot of them are the older homes, which of course were." bought up by some of these big companies. Uh, so what do you think? Is is this going to be a deciding factor? I think if you reduce the
2: discussion around long-term care in this province down to whether or not not-for-profit versus for-profit homes are good or bad, you're missing the entire boat. Um, what people care about is having a place to have their loved one be looked after, and as well, when they're in there, that they have good quality care. Those are the two items. So, building new spaces is important, and then secondly, having the funding in order to provide that steady and that continuous care that's going to be needed. And I really, I appreciate that everybody thinks that home care is the magic bullet and that seniors want to stay in their homes, but I would counter that by saying loneliness and isolation are killers as well. And the way that dementia seems to be grasping the world and continues to grasp the world, I don't think that we, we are looking at um, the old ways when it comes down to long-term care. And th- folks have to have a real shake of their heads to see what's going to be happening in the, in the next 10 years, quite frankly, where staying at home when you have dementia is just not an option, not an option, so we are going to have to have long-term care facilities with proper training and beds for enough people.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, when I talk to stakeholders, they kind of say, all of the above. We need we need more long-term care because there are, I think, what, about 40,000 people on waiting lists now, uh, many of whom have been at home and can no longer be cared for at home. But we have to do these other things as well, and Charles Stephen Del Duca, your former cabinet colleague, is promising to revolutionize it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know the opposition says, "Hey, you guys created a lot of the problem."
4: Well, it's going to be hard. I mean, uh, Stephen Del Duca, to his credit, uh, has uh, has illustrated, as we all know, the shortcomings of the existing system o- over many years, and and COVID, uh, you know, exacerbated the problem, and many died. So, yeah, there's some sacrifices that have been made. I do agree there's a combination that's going to be required between long-term care, home care, which is what many are advocating for, and also social programming and the hub and spoke model where people use certain facilities to access their programs. And that's what we're trying to build with our long-term care home and affordable housing complex, which is a not-for-profit. The big difference is Stephen Del is standing up saying, yeah, we're going to end the for-profit organizations by 2028, recognizing that there has been too many sacrifices made at the expense of some of our elders and seniors. It's going to be hard. We need leadership, we need clarity, and many with vested interest in for-profit will attack. But I think Stephen is prepared to fight for seniors, and that's what he'll do.
1: So you're on side, you think that abolishing for-profit care will make the difference?
4: I think investing in home care, investing in long-term care for the not-for-profits that are there to also add Greater diversity and supports for the long-term care society and community is, is welcome. And, uh, we, there's going to be a call and there has been a call for many to do away for a profit because the motivation at times, and I agree with Lisa, it'd be nice if it were just to be about the seniors and providing the best services necessary. But when they're sacrificed and when there's issues that are compromised, uh, then you need government to step in to provide support.
1: Yeah, and uh, uh, as an aside, it's interesting that uh, a lot of uh, in you know investment companies, big companies, are seeing these as great investments and paying big prices. Big business, uh, big business, and and you know when it's gone that way in the states, it's really not good. Um, Charles, well, we have you taught. You're a former finance minister. Budget coming this Thursday. Uh, is it just smoke and mirrors before an election?
4: Well, I'm losing track of all the promises at this point. I know when I did my last budget, I was criticized for buying votes because we were in that election mode, and that's certainly the this one has gone beyond uh, that. They've made lots of promises. Um, a lot of them are also re reannouncements. There's a lot of infrastructure spending. There's also a lot of tax cuts, so revenue cuts. And the FAO has come out recognizing that organically the economy is improving and greater revenues will be had. But at the same time, they're sacrificing, I believe, and they've made some changes over the past four years. They have actually kind of began to adopt our policies thereafter. I mean, they did away with them, and now they're bringing them back. But I do worry about sustainability of the budget, and, the, uh, and, and not just provincially and federally. Right? There is a need for us to take stock in the fact that when times are good, you kind of hold back a bit, build up your coffers to prepare for the next downturn. Uh, there's a lot of stimulus in this in this budget. There's a lot of investments to support uh, uh, and to give back to, to middle-income earners. But at the same time, I'm wondering what is it really going to be in terms of providing succession for our next generation and enabling us to sustain a balanced budget. And uh, that's not in the cards here. I don't see it.
1: Uh, Howard Hampton, uh, you brought up the uh, image of a bidding war uh, with the budget coming down. Uh, Is that how you see it, you know, throughout the economy?
3: Well, I think, uh, look, let's be clear. Uh, Whether you're talking about uh, the federal government or whether you're talking about uh, the provincial government or whether you're talking about much of the European Union or the United States, uh, governments and their central banks have flooded the system uh, with uh, with uh, income supports uh, to get us through COVID, with uh, what you could call as very loose money policies. Uh, and uh, there are very few governments uh, that don't have a huge deficit. Uh, and now you have uh, central banks indicating they're going to crank up interest rates. They have to, or we're, we're going to be at risk of very severe inflation. And the people who get hurt the most in severe inflation are people who have uh, the lowest incomes because they simply don't have the flexibility to deal with prices that are going out of sight. So, you know, I, I, I think for many people who reflect on the situation in the world, uh, and all all the money that's been spent, all the easy money that's been out there to try to get us through the COVID pandemic, uh, and now the risk of inflation and, and interest rates will have to go higher, and some governments are going to have to start cutting back. There is an aura of unreality about uh, the Ontario situation and the Ontario election. It is as if uh, everyone thinks uh, that uh, you know money is going to grow on trees here. And, and the interesting thing is, is I, I think the Ford government, you know, <laughs> is probably leading the pack. I, I'm trying to, Every day it seems like they've announced another billion-dollar project somewhere. So, you know, I hope people will uh, take a step back and look at this and say, how real is all of this? You know, how, how real is this uh, in the context of what's happening in the world? I, I think the federal government is going to be forced to increase taxes. I think the Bank of Canada is going to be forced to increase the interest rate uh, seriously, as will the uh, central bank in the United States. Uh, and I think that uh, that's going to have real repercussions uh, on what governments can do, what they can afford, and how much things are going to cost. And I think it's going to have a real repercussion on all those people who, who uh, took out uh, giant-sized mortgages to pay uh, inflated prices for houses. Uh, and who are now going to see their monthly uh, bills, monthly mortgage payments, uh, skyrocket. So, I, you know, I, I think it, if you put this in the context of where the world is today, this is uh, uh, what, what's happening so far in the Ontario election. You could almost say it's a little bit like theater of the absurd. Uh, Lisa? It's so unrealistic to be promising this kind of spending. Uh, in in the context of where the world is.
1: Lisa, uh, the PCs have been accused of, you know, taking a page from the liberals and just kind of spraying this cash around. I have to say, I I came back from a a brief trip and uh, I finally got my $330 for the license renewal fees. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, gee, you know, wow. Wow. Lisa? I'm right here. Oh. Sorry about that, Libby. Uh. I, look at,
2: I look at this practically. Look, this government is going to be judged on their record, which is very fair in terms of how voters are going to assess them. But like everything else, they're going to be judged on what their platform is. And the budget is going to be their platform. So this is the kind of thing that will come out in an election anyway. And people are going to judge it up against the NDP and the Liberals. And, you know, the NDP came out with their platform the other day, which mm-hmm. could be be their budget, quite frankly. The timing of this is because the fact that we're going to the pools on June 2nd. So everyone's going to cry you're spreading the money around. I get it. But you're kind of forced into this situation with the way the dates worked out. The second piece, though, in terms of the announcements that are being made on critical minerals on EV batteries, (laughs) that timing is dictated by the fact that the world is competing for this supply chain right now. This is something that can't wait. Zero. The moving to a zero-emission world is happening. Banks are involved. Pension plans are involved. Everybody is involved in this. And there's a scramble to figure out where we're going to find the minerals in order to create the EVs and the batteries. So that timing has to happen now, regardless of whether there's an election on June 2nd or there's an election in October. We have to be competing in this moment for those kinds of supply chains, or we're going to get left behind. And all the other things... All the other things that money's being spent on? Yeah. Sure. I think the one that you mentioned, Libby, is a good example, and that to me is the progressive conservative government understanding that affordability is a problem right now, that people are concerned about affordability. So here, we're not going to tax you on this. We're going to give this back to you. So that's, that's the kind of thing that they're doing. Would every party necessarily do that? Probably not, but that's the way in which that they're going to be uh, approaching the affordability piece along with the housing piece. And, and it's all going to be, I think, wrapped up in their budget on April 28. People are going to know how much things are going to cost that they're promising. And there's not going to be really much uh, much to debate over except for the fact of whether or not is this a good idea or not, which is what an election is about.
1: I mean, the conventional wisdom at this point is that uh, they will almost certainly get in again, uh, perhaps not with a majority, though uh, that's a question as well. Charles, do you think that their offering is enough to guarantee that? Um,
4: I mean, I, I recall doing the budget 2014. We were in a minority government, and we also put forward a platform, which was our budget. Uh, it wasn't... Uh, Turned down because the NDP basically turned their backs on us and didn't vote. So we went to the polls, and we came back with a majority based on that platform, based on that budget, to Lisa's point. The difference being, when we did it, we actually didn't want to have an election. We were looking for a debate on our budget. In this case, there is no debate. They're going to bring the budget. And just I recall in the last election, it didn't even cost out, they didn't even have a platform. Their only premise to run was, we're not Kathleen Wynn, so vote for us.
1: Well, that's so all that you was needed the then. That their it, last that's election. It.
4: Now they have to that's run it. on their record, as Lisa mentioned, exactly. and they do have a number of things that they have done, uh, but they're not, we have yet to determine how to cost this budget. There won't, I mean, the, the Auditor General uh, will have to do her part as quickly as she can because there won't be a lot of time uh, once the rick drops. Well, but, yeah, that, it, it's an interesting it, time. It certainly is. And, you know, over time, you've seen politicians take, things. they take political gain, take advantage of political gain for, for people's discontent. I mean, Trudeau did it, Harper, Ford did it to win, Polie is doing it to Trudeau right now. And that style of, I don't know, that simmering campaigning of, of, of negativity, it's been there now for a few years. It really started in the United States, to Howard's point. This Trump effect has now been, <laughs> it's huge, and it, unfortunately it's effective. And I think that's part of what we're going to be seeing in this election as well.
1: Howard, uh, you know, the other two are saying that they're going to have to run on their record. Uh, but, uh, you know, last time uh, there was a big appetite for change. And also Doug Ford, something about his personality caught fire with people, people like him. And the criticism that is this time that neither of the two opposition leaders are, are lighting a fire under voters. I think uh, let's put
3: it this way in the context of COVID uh, it's been very difficult for anyone to get any sort of political grip or political mileage uh, because uh, that event has uh, literally blown governments off whatever their agenda was. And it certainly blew the Ford government off their agenda. Uh, I mean, this is a government that uh, said they were all about cutting taxes. Ontario now has, I think, the lowest uh, tax rate in North America, uh, even though it was very low before uh, in, terms of the, in terms of corporate taxes. So um, I, I think, uh, one, it's been very difficult for any, any politician, uh, especially opposition politicians, to find uh, grip or mileage. Uh, in the context of COVID. And governments who have been in power have not been able to follow through on the agenda that they set. Now, one of the realities for Mr. Ford is he did have an agenda in the last election. Uh, and I think a lot of people are going to be saying, you know, is, is that is that still the agenda? And if it is, I, I think they will be negatively affected. I think the election campaign and the events that happen in this election campaign and some of them may not may not have anything to do with 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 governments. I mean, I, I keep reading that the sixth wave of COVID is here, and the only reason we aren't alarmed is because governments have stopped doing the kind of testing that we needed to do. So, if if COVID becomes a big issue during this campaign, I I, I think uh, that will have uh, un uh, undetected so far. Uh, implications for the uh, uh, for the election. And I think it'll have undetected implications for the Ford government. But I actually think this is a campaign, uh, this is an election where the, the campaign will really count because there are so many events that can happen during this campaign. As we saw, uh, inflation is taking off, as, as, as we saw, not just in Toronto, but even now in places like North Bay, Sault Ste. Marie, Sudbury, uh, Windsor house prices are going out of sight because because some people are leaving Toronto because some people can work uh, they don't have to work at the office anymore. So I think there are a lot of events that could happen during this election campaign, which uh, mean that the campaign itself is going to be very important. in terms of determining the outcome.
1: Sorry, Howard, I'm looking at my clock. We're out of time, so I want to give Lisa and Charles each 20 seconds. Lisa, what would you like to leave us with? I'm looking forward to the
2: campaign. I think it is, just like Charles said, it is a different campaign this time because it isn't about whether or not you enjoyed Kathleen Kathleen Wins. Kathleen
1: Harper, I just made a, I just put them together, didn't I? (laughs) Kathleen Wins. um,
2: We we get your point.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, Charles, last 20 seconds to you.
4: Well, you know, Howard talked about peace in the world, and, uh, and I'm talking about peace at home, too. And to everyone's point, we sort of want a bit more decorum and a little bit more respect. I'm, a, I'm excited about the campaign that's coming up, maybe a bit more than most, uh, because, frankly, uh, I want to see what, what we're able to address as it relates to this whole notion of free speech, the hate that seems to be out there, and how is it that these uh, leaders are going to perform, and how are they going to debate, and how are they going to show some respect for one another as we go forward? I respect my colleagues here on the phone because I've worked with them in some capacity or another, and this is what it's all about, is recognizing that we may have different partisan views, but we always respect one another for their desire to make Canada and Ontario a better place.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, well, that was a, a great first round. I look forward to talking to all of you again next Tuesday, and for many Tuesdays after that. Thanks so much, Howard Hampton, Lisa Wright, and Charles Souza. Thanks, Libby. All the best. Take care, everyone. Thank Bye. You. Bye-bye. We're going to take a break, and uh, speaking of decorum, free speech, and all that, we'll be talking about Elon Musk's takeover of Tesla when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. So, first of all, my bad. We are talking about Twitter not Tesla, as I said in the promo before the break. And so the question is, is social media about to become even more problematic and pervasive than it is now? Elon Musk, the world's richest man, is buying Twitter for $44 billion and taking it private, saying he wants more free speech. And Free speech, of course, is often code for hate speech, conspiracy theories, and all kinds of misinformation. And if you are in my business, for instance, you have to be on Twitter to be on top of a lot of breaking news. And Musk is promising to make it better. So what do you think? Uh, are you even on Twitter? Or are there some people who are saying they're going to get off as soon as he takes over the numbers to call 416-360-0740 toll-free 1-866-744-740 and now i am joined by Carmi levy a technology analyst and journalist based in london ontario hi Carmi. hi Libby. great to be here thank you for joining us so What's your take? Uh, Is this just an indulgence for a very rich guy who wants to say exactly what he pleases on the platform because he's been slapped a bit or, or what?
5: Well, I think on the surface, it's easy to look through that lens. He's been on Twitter for years. He's got 83 million followers. He's an active user of it. He's used it to make most of his major announcements for his other companies, including Tesla and SpaceX, as well as Neuralink and the Boring Company and others. So, you know, he recognizes the power of Twitter, but he hasn't been very happy with how the company has been run for a number of years. And he's complained pretty openly about it. And he's tried to petition leadership from the outside. Uh, And I guess he probably reached a point where he figures, hey, I'm the world's richest guy, I can probably scrounge up the money some way rather than fighting them from the inside. Why don't I just buy them? And that's kind of why, why we end up where we are. It's, it is, you know, at, at its most cynical, it's a multibillionaire who's decided that he wants to have the biggest megaphone, the biggest platform of everyone, and uh, he figures he can afford it. And, uh, and as a result, he's made this deal um, to buy you know, what is un- essentially an underperforming company, certainly wouldn't be able to afford Facebook. Um, But he's 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 essentially at that point now where he will have later this year his hands on the reins of probably one of the more influential social media platforms on
6: planet Earth.
1: Hmm. So, uh, you know, he himself has uh, posted some things that are uh, kind of unsavory. And he says he wants more free speech, and free speech is the bedrock of democracy. Uh, true, but uh, I think that, say, free speech uh, in conspiracy theories is antithetical to democracy. What do you think is going to happen? Do you see an explosion of the bad stuff?
5: I think he has an overly simplistic view or definition of what freedom of speech is and what it represents and he seems to believe that uh, you should be able to say whatever you want in any context that you want and you know have no consequences for that and we know full well that freedom of speech does have limitations that uh it does not encompass uh, hate filled speech it does not encompass xenophobia um that you know there are protections for those who would be bullied and stalked uh, and Twitter, unfortunately, has a terrible track record in that regard. Early on in its history, it became known as a very toxic platform because its architecture is wide open. Anyone can, can reach out to anyone else. There aren't the kind of natural protections that are built into other platforms. Uh, and so the company has introduced uh, restrictions, updates to its terms of use, its terms of service, to curb those extremes of behavior. But it never quite figured it out. It never quite solved it. Now along comes Elon Musk basically saying, well, those content moderation tactics and tools and rules, those amount to a violation of freedom of speech, which we all know is logically wrong, but it's essentially a dog whistle to those who would use the platform for darker purposes. And I fear that elon musk owning the company will open the door to that that it essentially anyone who wants to pursue those extremist views and doesn't want to be uh, held accountable for them doesn't want to face the consequences guess what we now know what your favorite social media platform is
1: okay well uh, i'm going to take a call from wanda i think she has a very good question here on my board wanda in toronto hello hi thank you so much um I really love your show. Thank but you. But I did
2: wanna ask and because I haven't heard it. If he's the wealthiest man in the world, why doesn't he just start his own platform? Why does he have to take over Twitter? Uh,
5: Carmi? Uh. That's a, it it's a great question, Wanda. And you're absolutely right. You know, if 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 you can't beat them, compete against them. But you know, exactly. if you look at the but, and, but if you look at the history of social media, so many other people have tried to come up with with what we like to call a Twitter killer, uh, a platform that would essentially be a better Twitter and beat it at its own game. But if you look over the last 10 years or so, there have been one after another, after another attempt to do exactly that. And they've all ended up wreckage alongside the highway. The latest example, Truth Social, funded by none other than than, uh, Donald Donald Trump. Trump. Exactly. And so in social media, there's a window within which you can create your audience, and to start from scratch is much more difficult than simply buying the incumbent. And that's where we're at with Twitter: is that it's a lot harder to to come up with a, a Twitter killer than it is to simply find the money to buy Twitter itself, and then let everyone come after you. And as a result, uh, Elon had said that he was probably, you know, that he wanted to start a competitor. But, you know, considering what he bought Twitter for, even though it's a huge, you know, fairly large chunk of money, one of the largest deals in social media history, um, it is still uh, has a much greater chance of success this way than if he had tried to build his own from scratch.
1: Really? Even though he's got that kind of numbers following him, they would follow exactly. him probably no matter what he did. or Well, uh, I, I what were Donald Trump's uh, Wanda? Thanks for your call. Uh, I don't remember what Donald Trump's numbers were, but they were something like that
5: yeah they were they were in that zone. They were about eighty million as well when he was finally suspended from the platform last year in the wake of the January sixth insurrection. And as we've seen, just because you have a large number of followers does not directly translate to business success doesn't mean that that platform is going to achieve what we like to call critical mass. Uh, it takes a lot more than that it's you know just just be, being a billionaire who's, who's super popular. That is uh, only one very small ingredient of a much larger dish. And uh, unfortunately, and, and unfortunately for Elon Musk, he's recognized that and he's followed a different path. But Donald Trump still thinks that uh, he's going to make a go of truth social. And uh, I think uh, he's going to be very unpleasantly surprised with where this is going to end up.
1: Uh, Donald Trump or Elon Musk? So, what do you think? Where's it going
5: to go? Well, so I think, uh, you know, Donald Trump is nowhere. I think Donald Trump is going to hold his breath and hope that Elon Musk lets him back onto Twitter. Um, I don't think Twitter is going to disappear anytime soon, but I think it's going to become a nastier place uh, once the deal closes and Elon Musk starts to implement the changes that he said he would. I don't think they'll be quite as extreme as what he had or has originally said. I think he'll realize that there's a lot more responsibility associated with running a social media company than uh, than anything else that he's ever dealt with. And so it'll tend to get tamped down a little bit. But, uh, you know, he, he will use it uh, to his end. He'll use it to promote his other businesses and he'll use it to advance his own agenda. Uh, anyone else who has felt that they were threatened or targeted on Twitter previously, uh, they may not like where Twitter ends up.
1: Uh, one good thing that he is promising to do is to get rid of the bots.
5: Yeah, that's a huge problem. And, you know, of all the people, if you look at at your own sort of follower count, there's probably a certain percentage of them that are, in fact, not humans at all. They're, they're bots, they're scripts, they were created uh, through automation, and of course, uh, that is a huge issue because the larger the percentage of bots that Twitter has, the less likely it is that there's actual real human conversation on what is supposed to be a freedom of speech platform. Um, I'm sorry, but bots don't really constitute freedom of speech. And so he's pledged to get rid of them. He's pledged to be more transparent about how the algorithm works. He's essentially said that uh, you know, he wants the, the algorithm to be open source so that anyone can look at it and see how it works. Uh, and, and, uh, which of course would be a good thing. So there are a few things in there that he sort of planted that he's, he's indicated, you know, will be helpful for the rest of us. But again, with Elon Musk, it's always hard to tell. He'll say something that grabs our attention that, you know, snags a headline, um, gets a lot of attention. And then, you know, a couple of days later, he'll walk it back. So hard to tell until he actually owns the company and starts acting as its CEO and president. But, For now, he said a lot of crazy things that make me wonder sort of which direction Twitter is going to end up going forward. But there at least is some hope that not all of it is going to be bad.
1: Okay, Carmi Levy, thank you so much for that.
5: Great being here, Libby. Thank you.
1: Bye bye. Bye. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader and his new platform promise to revolutionize seniors care when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Well, as we have been saying this morning, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca unveiled sweeping changes to seniors care. He is promising to abolish for-profit long-term care as soon as possible, and to spend an additional $2 billion on home care. That's double what the PCs are offering to do and unveiled just yesterday. Now, both the opposition NDP and PCs are on the attack saying it's the Liberals that created a lot of the mess in the first place. Let's hear what Stephen Del Duca has to say. Welcome and thanks so much for being with us.
6: My pleasure, Libby, great to be back on with you.
1: okay, well, uh, so you're promising two billion dollars the way I read it is that over three years?
6: No, so just to be really clear about this, we will we will immediately start increasing the investment in home care by ten percent each year by the by the fourth year. that will be an additional two billion per year. Uh, so in that fourth year, that's two billion. but over those four years it's about four point four billion new dollars in home care, which is about a little bit more than three times what the Ford Conservatives announced yesterday. And that's how we'll deliver um, community-based home care in a real way, an easy-to-navigate way for 400,000 additional seniors over and above the 700,000 that access it today.
1: Okay, so it's three times what the Ford government unveiled yesterday. Yes. Now, in terms of the hair, the, the home care, I have to say, I've, uh, a year ago, I had to have some home care and the system is mired in bureaucracy. Yep. There are huge middle people. And quite frankly, that architecture, uh, a lot of it was created by, by liberal governments. And, you know, the service is, is there's a community agency. Um, but the service is delivered by private companies. So there's a coordinator from the private company. There's a government coordinator, and um, as uh, the patient in the middle, like you, almost count for nothing.
6: Listen, you know, three years ago, Libby, my mom, uh, so she's uh, she's in her early 80s. She fell and broke her hip. She oh,
1: had no. to get
6: rushed to. She had she's she's doing great. She had to Good. get rushed to hospital. They replaced the you know they repaired or replaced her her hip uh, hip joint. She went for rehab, came home, and not unlike your experience, when we tried to, back then, tried to navigate what she might be able to access by way of home care, it was next to impossible to figure out what she would have available, what could be done, when it could be done. So after, you know, a relatively short period of time, we kind of gave up on the home care option, and we are blessed to have a lot of good family support and, frankly, have the capacity to look for other alternatives in, in my family, but far too many Ontarians don't have A lot of those options. And so I stress to our team and part of our plan is it's not just about the money. I mean, the money is really important because you got to make the right kind of investment if you're going to deliver a home care guarantee or use a home care first approach like I am determined to do. But it has to be a system that is easy to navigate where we are measuring the progress, tracking the progress so we can see that the end user, in this case, the individual Ontarian who needs the care is actually getting the care so we talk a lot about the, the need for a, a bit of a, I'll call it concierge service. So right at the front end in, in various languages, because some Ontarians we know face a bit of a language barrier, that it's an easy system to navigate, that it, is, that it is equally or equitably delivered across the province so that if you're in Windsor, you have the same access to the same kinds of services that somebody in Wawa would. And of course, we're talking about, you know this already, but for your audience's sake, I'm talking about all the, the five sort of general areas of home care whether that's help with taking a shower or making a meal or having a friendly chat with with a, a positive and uplifting sort of individual in your life all of that needs to be delivered in a way that actually breaks but, through the excessive bureaucracy and gives the gives the patient or the individual Ontarian what they need
1: But but Stephen what do you say to the criticism that it was a liberal government that you were involved I mean there are limbs created by your government sublins ccacs like that architecture was created by previous liberal government so
6: well libby with the greatest of respect if i if i spent all of my time talking about what took place 20 years ago 10 years ago 5 years ago uh, that wouldn't do a single thing to help people like my mom access the home care that they need starting on june 3rd So there, you know, I I tell people all the time, the Ontario Liberal Party has new leadership. It has a new team of candidates. Progress never ends. And I'm looking forward to being able to deliver on this kind of, I call it a revolution in seniors care in this province, because it's not just the home care first approach or the home care guarantee by making an unprecedented investment in home care that will be easy to access. We're also talking about ending for-profit long-term care. Uh, and using creative means to make that happen. We're talking about not just ending for-profit long-term care, but eliminating the idea of warehousing or institutionalizing our seniors and delivering for those who do need a level of care uh, from long-term care, uh, actually eliminating those warehouses and, and putting people into actual homes in smaller groups and giving them the infection prevention and control, the PSWs, the nurses, and the support that they need. So this is big. This is a big reorientation or revolution of seniors' care, and I'm really proud of the work we've done, and I'm excited about being able to roll up my sleeves and deliver on this should I earn the honour of governing Ontario.
1: Okay, so again, so how would you do that uh, in terms of the for-profit care? Uh, the the argument I've always heard against ending it is that the cost would be prohibitive. And and where are the people who are there now, uh, you know, not even considering the 40,000 or some odd who are on waiting lists, where do they go? So tell me, how how would you do that?
6: So, yeah, it's a great question. You know, I I think that I think it's important to recognize, and this is the way that I, I characterize it, there will need to be multiple paths that a a liberal government would pursue immediately, by the way, not waiting six months or a year, but immediately, multiple paths that we would pursue. Because when you look at the uh, the dozens or the hundreds of for-profit long-term care homes that exist in the province, uh, many of them are in different states of uh, sort of where they sit in terms of how much time is left on their license or their contract, uh, different models, different parts of the province, different company structures. So what I've said is, number one, we will not grant any more for-profit licenses starting in 2023, and we won't renew any of the existing licenses or contracts also for for the for-profit starting in 2023. Secondly, we're going to start a discussion, an urgent discussion, with the full power and authority of the Premier's office behind this discussion on day one, on June 3rd, should we earn this honor, to make it quite clear to the for-profit industry that, first of all, we mean business, We have a targeted date of 2028 to make this happen. Uh, I've said already that where we might end up is a situation where we have to backstop loan guarantees to the not-for-profit sector. Our plan calls for what's known as an accelerator fund to help the the not-for-profit sector in long-term care capacity build so they can absorb the additional spaces they would have to manage under our plan. Um, it, it might mean that the province of Ontario has to actually acquire some of the assets, even on a temporary basis from the for profits and, and put those assets onto the province's books. And in terms of what that would look like, in ter- you know with respect to costs and how we'd pay for that, I did say this morning that our platform, when it comes out in a few weeks, will be fully costed, and everybody will be able to see exactly what we anticipate the impact to the province's fiscal plan will be. But here's the bottom line for me. Oh, you you mentioned those on the waiting list. Let's also not forget that the waiting lists exist and the long-term care commission report projected a number of what the need was in long-term care in the absence of having a home care first guarantee. So I believe, and others tell me as well, that if we make the kind of investment we're talking about home care and we do it the right way, nearly four and a half billion in new money over four years, that we will actually reduce the wait lists for long-term care And that we won't have as great a need. One other thing quickly I'll say, our plan also calls for the creation of 15,000 assisted living spaces for seniors across the province. So it's an ambitious plan, but I truly feel, especially after what we've seen in the past two years, this is the time to sink our teeth in this, roll up our sleeves, and get the job done in the right way by delivering on this revolution for seniors' care.
1: Okay, um, interesting ideas. I'm, I'm looking at the NDP's critique. They of course, were the first party to promise to abolish uh, for-profit care. And uh, basically, they're saying uh, they don't think that you will do this. Uh, they're talking about uh, Bob Bell. Is he still involved with crafting uh, crafting your policies?
6: No, I mean Bob. Bob is someone who I have a ton of respect for, but he me didn't, too. He didn't by the have, way, yeah, he didn't. He didn't have any direct input on this part of our platform. You know, can I just can I just say it's like I understand politics, Libby. You know that I do. I know each of the other political parties vying for people's support. Well, you say what they're going to say. Campaigns are going to, as the old saying goes. But when I when I started my remarks off this morning, I talked about not only my parents, but I talked about my four grandparents. Uh, I was close to all four of them, so blessed in my life to have them in my life for quite a few years. in fact, my my dad's mom was nearly ninety seven when she passed away. She came to my wedding, the only one of my four grandparents who was able to be at my wedding. And to witness how much they loved me and my sister and my brothers and their entire family and how much they gave us, I just want to say to your audience, this is not politics for me. This is personal. This is personal because I think we have gotten this wrong collectively, not one political party or one government, but collectively for decades. And, you know, in my remarks this morning, I said, we've made some catastrophic mistakes as a people in the 20th century, burning coal to produce electricity, brutally treating our indigenous peoples. And yes, we're housing and institutionalizing our seniors. So we got to fix it. And I feel a again, a personal and profound obligation to make sure that we deliver on this. And I will move heaven and earth to make it happen.
1: Okay. That is uh, actually very good to hear. Stephen Del Duca, thank you so much for being with us.
6: Thanks, Libby. You take care.
1: You too. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.